And joining me is just a, a good friend and a good person. And it oh took God, way too here long. We go. <laughs> took way too long to get him to co-host. But you know what? He recently finished second in the hardest working man in show business category. Uh, he is the host of... Yeah, the problem is the first guy's dead. <laughs> <laughs> He's the host of, of Diamondbacks Radio. He is the host of Power Alley on MLB Network Radio. He does play-by-play. He does all sorts of things. He's always doing something. And from his luxurious accommodations, about to become even more luxurious as he undergoes a bathroom renovation. Yeah, neat. In Phoenix, Arizona, it's Mike Farron. Mike, how are you? I'm good, Kevin. How are you? (laughs) I am also well, Dimitri. I'd be a lot uh, better if I didn't have to deal with uh, plumbers right now. And, uh, you know, it's nothing like getting three days into a project and them being like, well, we're going to have to make a literal every alteration. Time, so, every yeah, time. I had a, uh, I had a, we had a crazy accident in the late winter where a, uh, a, tr- a huge branch fell off our huge tree in the backyard and it hit a, a line that was connected, to, a cable that was connected to the house. Um, and that cable was connected to the house so damn well that instead of just snapping, it basically pulled a huge portion of our siding away. Ooh. Um, and then a yeah, contractor finally came out and started working on it. And it took literally four minutes for him to say, oh, yeah, this is worse than we thought. We got to fix this, this, and this. I was like, yeah, what? Well, just do it. I have insurance. I'm not Terrific. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was great. Ours is because when we bought this house, um, the, uh, the, the primary uh, bedroom suite is – uh, built into what was originally a four-car garage. And so it's this really nice little bedroom suite with a bathroom and all this. But the uh, owner who did all the renovations, um, she didn't apparently want to spend enough money to, money to run a, a set waistline out of the bathroom. So she installed what they call a, a may-creating toilet, which is basically, a, and and I know the Fangrass audience will really appreciate it this early in the show, it's got a poop grinder on it. So yeah, sure. It grinds that stuff up and shoots it through a smaller pipe. So now we're dealing with that as we try to renovate. So we don't have a, we don't have a, a poop blender anymore in our bathroom. <laughs> so we have less to talk about uh, we're gonna have no you mean other today. than this other than this old house with mike <laughs> and kevin which will be premiering on pbs this fall um there's no guest this week uh i if you listen to the show that came out today our playoff preview i booked eight guests and and as mike will tell you as an experienced radio host and radio producer in his past life booking eight guests is a pain in the ass and um so, you know, between that and the fact that the playoffs are going and getting guests is a very difficult thing. And the fact that we have a lot to talk about, it's just me and Mike. You're stuck with us. Yeah, I'm sorry for that, folks. But, yeah. <laughs> we're going to 
uh, run through the playoffs. And even though this comes out Friday morning, we're going to act like we know it's going to happen. And one game will already be in the books in a couple of these series. Um, there was lots of news around baseball uh, other than just the playoffs. Uh, and then we'll go right into the emails. Uh, I think what's going to be kind of an extended discussion of, of catching up with, with Mr. Farron. Uh, we'll have a little moment of culture and we'll be out of here. You ready to talk baseball, Mike? Let's do it. Let's just run through the playoffs. Let's just do this. Okay. So starting today, uh, we have the American League series and kicking off in about two, a little more than two hours from now, it is the White Sox and the Astros starting in Houston. These are five game series. I am going to stick to my brand and say that we are not going to tell you who we think is going to win because again, anyone telling you with any sort of assurance who's going to win a playoff series is lying to you themselves or both. Uh, but you know, the White Sox Astros game, I think the most interesting thing for me is game one in the sense that Lance Lynn is starting. It makes sense that Lance Lynn is starting. He's been their best pitcher this year. Um, but the White Sox have a long history of getting to Lance Lynn pretty damn well. Yeah. And Lance Lynn, as you know, throws, you know, 90% something fastballs. There's about, depending on how you look at it, four or five different kinds of fastballs, but they're fastballs. Um, and the Astros hit fastballs. Um, they hit a lot of things, but they, they hit fastballs especially well. And so here we are. And I get the decision, but if I was the White Sox, I'd be a little nervous heading into this game. Um, I, I guess. I mean, I think, but it's also like the guy that you rely on and the guy who's got so much experience in this spot and has plenty of experience facing the Houston lineup too. And, you know, even though it's been what, like it, it's something like five of the last six starts that he's had against Houston, the line hadn't been great on it. Yeah, including um, uh, one this year in, in the middle of the season, he gave up six and four innings. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, I think, you know, it's also one of those things where you could, if you really wanted to take a step back and go, okay, wait, this guy's a good pitcher. Um, you know, at some point he's going to have an outing that, um, you know, shuts down this offense just by the law of averages. But I agree, it's a it's a tough matchup for him against Houston. I mean, he, like the, the the one thing that Lance Lynn does really well that that you know could give him success against the Houston lineup is that he throws a lot of pitches that can get outs in the strike zone, mm-hmm. and you're not going to get that Houston lineup to chase very much. And there's not a lot of swing and miss. Well, Lynn can survive with that versus Lucas Giolito. Who relies a lot on it's a less efficient pitcher, yeah, yeah, and 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 also is just like, you know, I mean, I can't think in terms of swings and misses, total swings and misses. Codify had him like second in the majors behind Garrett Cole this year, so and that's not easy to do against Houston's lineup. So, right, I, I like you said, I totally get it. It doesn't look great on paper, but but it just needs to be Lance Lynn pitching well for, you know, five or six innings and keeping the team in the game in the hopes that they can, you know, I, I mean, I'm actually more concerned about their offenses, how they line up against Lance McCullers Jr. than I am really about Lynn against the Astros lineup. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're right-handed heavy. Um, talked to, to Herb Lawrence yesterday's show, you know, they did kind of put it on cruise control in the second half. Um, and that's, I understand. I mean, at times they weren't, it took them a while to get their whole lineup back, which they finally have. And so they're a bit of a different team. They also did a lot of, um, let's use the NBA term load management. Um, the guy, guy got a little ding and if it was October, he'd still be pitching, but you know, you put him on the 10 day, skip a couple starts, keep him fresh, that kind of thing. Um, but this team's like ready to go health wise, uh, for the most part, Jose Abreu, I guess has the flu. Um, and Chicago teams have a horrible history with superstars with the flu. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so you know, maybe we'll get a flu game today. Uh, but I, I honestly, you know, 
again, we're not going to say he's going to win this series because we don't know, but I, I don't think either team's an overwhelming favorite here. I think this is actually kind of too evenly matched, but the right-handed aspect of the White Sox does kind of, would kind of also concern me. Yeah. I mean, I think, but, but their, but their righties handle righties. Okay. Right. Yeah. Like, so that, that's the thing is that most of those guys are above average hitters against right-handed pitching. And there's not one of them that really, um, you know, struggles from a, a, a swing and miss standpoint, you know, like Jimenez is probably the highest strikeout guy, of the regulars um, for the right on right. And it's just under 24%, which is, you know, pretty good. Like, I mean, comparatively, I guess to, to, you know, what it could be for some of the, the better hitters right on right. Like they're going to, they're going to have some strikeout in their game. They're probably not going to walk a, a bunch, you know, Robert and Anderson aren't guys that walk anyway, but like, I, I don't know. Timmy Anderson to me has a little bit of the rise to the occasion to him. And oh, I yeah. realize that that's a really non-analytical thing to bring up. No, I'm with you. I believe in that stuff. Tom and Tim Anderson is, can be the, that guy who just like puts a team on his back. Like, Timmy Anderson's going to hit a home run in a key spot in this series. And it's going to fire everybody up in that White Sox dugout. And if he does it at guaranteed rate mortgage field, the place is going to lose its mind. I think he's this is this is his chance to really be a breakout star in this series is that, that people will get to see a guy who's you know been the top batting average hitter in the majors over the last three years and as much as we've discounted how much that matters overall batting average is a huge part of Tim Anderson's success and yeah. he's really good I I think this is this to me is I think even with the the Dodgers Giants division series this is my favorite matchup because i just think both of these teams are really good they're both world series caliber teams you get the history of the managers involved because dusty Mm -hmm. and and tony have had um more than a few dust-ups over the years like i i think it's i think from a a historical aspect and from a from just a a flat-out matchup aspect i think it's pretty close and i think it's going to be a really fun series and I think if you're the Astros, I think one thing that's still a concern, uh, and we talked to Jake Kaplan about this, is the bullpen. And they did a lot yeah. to address at the trade deadline, but even then, there were some improvements, but it's still a bullpen that um, way too many free passes. There's still a lot of walks in that bullpen. And then, you know, even in, here in game one, and by the time you listen to this, game one will be in the books, but like Lance McCullers on a, on a rate level pitches like an ace, but he's also a guy who you expect six from like you do, you're probably not going to get more than six. He averages more than a hundred pitches per six innings. Like six is around where you're going to get out of them, which means you're going to have to lean on this pen. And as good as, as Ryan Presley has been and is um, those bridge innings, I think are going to be the real kind of stress points for Houston. You know, and I, I think that there's something else too. And we were actually talking to AJ Hinch about this this morning and that's that, and he kind of brought it up in passing, but McCullers, there were every once in a while. There's a start where he doesn't have feel for his breaking ball, and really, that's sure. his key pitch. And it happened in the it happened in the postseason last year. Yeah, it did, and it, and it's and I I watched it happen on one of his starts last year, and I was like, whoa, like this does not look like the same guy because his changeup is decent, but he needs to have that 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 breaking ball is is his best pitch, and if he doesn't have the, guess he throws a spike curve, right? That's if mm-hmm. he doesn't have that, um, you know, not only can hitters start to eliminate it, but um, the fastball and change of play similar enough that I think that that hitters are able to kind of tee off on him, and sometimes that that you know he's got a decent breaking ball or one that looks decent, but he's not able to land it for strikes consistently, right. and he runs a lot of deep counts early. So you know if he's a six inning pitcher during the regular season, then you're looking at him being a five inning pitcher, and then what do you do if you're if you're Dusty Baker? I mean, I think like I. 
I think Christian Javier is a guy that has a chance to be a big impact in this series as a potential multiple inning guy, especially against, you know, if you get the pocket of right-handed bats where you don't have to deal with Grandal or Moncada. Um, I'm not really afraid of, of Cesar Hernandez because he, he just hasn't been as good against righties this year. But Yeah, he'll just but, run into one once in a while. And right, you, but I mean, like, he's, he's fine. Like, as a number nine hitter, I like Cesar Hernandez. I think it speaks to the depth of their lineup, but, like, it's just not been his best season from the left side of the plate. And so, like, Javier against those right-handed guys could be a big difference maker, but they may need to go to him for multiple innings for sure right out of the gate um the other series starting this evening is the red sox with the rays the red sox with a um i mean it was a fun game but it was not a thrill ride or anything like that they they jumped on garrett cole early garrett cole just didn't pitch well um and then just kind of rolled a little bit from there uh to eliminate the yankees we'll get to that in a second um again like on paper you go oh this is you know whoever's winning this game anyway has to play the Rays and they're in all sorts of trouble and the Red Sox um you know the big question was would JD Martinez be on the roster he is we don't still don't know how really bad the ankle is um you know Matt Barnes is off the roster um they are running out left-handed starters probably in three of the five games and the Rays sure hit lefties hard oh god but at the same time again like you know if you look at you know the, the kind of odds that, that Dan Samborski generates a fan graphs, which I think are very well done. It's like 55%, you know, yeah. it's, it's not some, it's five game series, man. It's, 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 it's rough, but um, you know, they, they, they burnt their best starter in the wild card game, which they should have done. They had to do it. You got to win that game or you go home, you know, and now they're going with Eduardo Rodriguez who looked way better in the second half than the first. Um, and, and like, who knows what you get from Chris Sale at this point. Um, I, I don't know if Chris Sale went like, six one hit innings i wouldn't be shocked if he's done in the third i wouldn't be shocked um but it feels like uh, you know if, if this becomes a battle of attrition the, the red sox are in a lot more trouble than the rays i just think that that this rays team is so much different than what most people are used to with the rays team i mean their pitching still really good they still have the stable of guys that throw 98 but right the the part that that gets overlooked is that this is actually a really damn good offensive team. Like they're yeah. really good. Right. Like, they have no one who like, they have like no one with huge numbers and no one to talk about as an MVP, but as a team they're they lead the league in run score. I mean, yeah, it's, it's right there. Like it's good as anybody. It just doesn't have that one that due to it's like three twenty with 40 and 120. Like it's just, a bunch of guys who are good. They're just like the Giants. I mean, yeah. Only it's younger. Very I mean, that's they're, they're very similar roster constructions. They're able to run basically entire line changes out there based on the handedness of the pitcher. And like, you know, against the lefty in game one, they're going to like, that's Franco's stronger side so far has been from the right side. Like Zanino, Mike Zanino's numbers against left-handed pitching. It's like him and Cattell Marte and then the rest of the league against right. lefties this year. Like he just destroys him. He's slugging almost 900 against them this mm-hmm. year. So like they're, and, and then you get into like the next best guys are like Randy Rosarena and Nelson Cruz. So their best players do the most damage against lefties. And so, yeah, do you negate Brandon Lau a little bit? Yeah, you do. But Lau is kind of the most pitchable of their their premium offensive players. You know, does it against negate lefty, Joey yeah. Wendell? Yeah. Does that impact their defense because they they're um, you know, they they might be more likely to go with like a Yandi Diaz at third? Yeah, it does. But I, I just think it's just, just it's such a good offensive team and the pitching is good enough and and with I think they're fascinating because they're going to run rookies out there 
you know, probably in at least three games of the series as starters mm-hmm. um, and likely more. Like when you're when you're watching those guys go like they Kevin Cash is so good at knowing the pressure point in the game and he's not going to let them go deeper than they need to. Um, but they also have the chance to dominate. And the fact that the Red Sox haven't seen Shane Boz yet is I think that's a huge advantage potentially for Boz in, in game two. So, I, I mean, I, I, I get where the the probability would put them at a, you know, at 55% based on the matchups because the, the Red Sox are a good team, but I think, I think everybody is sleeping uh, on how good Tampa Bay is. Yeah. It, it, I, 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 I kind of agree with you. I still always am kind of baffled by how good they are and, and, and it's on me. It's not anyone else, but yeah. I, I still you should probably I, figure that out. I, I, I've tried. And, um, you know, I did look into it this summer and, and it kind of calmed me down a little bit, but I still am always worried about, um, like when you have to use six, seven pitchers in a game that just the chances increase that one of those guys just isn't going to have it, you know, right. is going to have a, you know, the more pitchers you use, the more chances of someone not having it. Um, and that's always worried me about the way they do things, but it does sound, seem like they're going to, um, you know, go. They're not. They're, there's, there's no game lined up as a bullpen game, you know, and and they're not doing that. And, and right. you know, I, 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 you know, I'd set the over under on McClanahan innings at five, you know, but still, it, it it does reduce that risk a little bit, and I, I think that helps them as opposed to some of the things they've done in the past. Well, I mean, I think the other thing is that that they're, um, but the thing I appreciate about what they do is that they're like it's it's all hands on deck mm. because they understand the urgency of each game, right? So if Rasmussen, who's scheduled to start game three, has to pitch out of the bullpen in the first two games because that gives them their best chance to win, they'll use Rasmussen. And he's got experience doing that. I mean, heck, the fact that they converted him to a starter was a little bit of a surprise based on, I mean, yeah. I think when even coming out of college at, at Oregon State, the feeling was this guy was going to be a pretty good reliever, and that's the way the Brewers viewed him, and that's where he started using him before they sent him back to Durham for a while. And so, like, Rasmussen can give you innings like that. They could, they could run through their four rookie starters through the first two games because they feel like it gives them the best chance to win. And then you're looking at, you know, matchups or an opener or, or something, you know, for a game four. Although I do think it's interesting just as an aside that they didn't keep Ryan Yarborough on the roster for that. He's the guy that's benefited the most from that. Maybe it's because of the, the makeup of that, that Boston lineup and Yarborough's best pitch is really that change up. And, and he also had a real bad, he, had, he also had a rough September. Yeah. He gave up, yeah. You know, he 20 runs in, in 20, but it, 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 it's funny because it made me think of, of, the 17 Astros in the sense that Ryan Yarbrough led the Rays in innings this year and is not on the postseason roster in 2017. Mike Fires led the team in innings yeah. and was not on the postseason roster. Um, we talked about how much they bash lefties. Were you kind of surprised? I, I was a little bit that they went with, with Jordan Luplo over Brett Phillips. Uh, you know, Luplo is going to play first base and, and Luplo hit, he didn't hit lefties well this year, but has a history of hitting lefties very well. Um, and kind of almost overloading against lefties. And, you know, Brett Phillips I, is not, you know, a big offensive piece, but it's, it's, it's a decent pinch hitter, uh, really good defense can pinch run. It, it takes away from some, some kind of late inning options from Kevin cash. I was kind of surprised by that one. I, I disagree. Of, they I mean, thought I they think, had enough lefty bashers really. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in Luplo's numbers have been pretty good against righties this year, actually, which mm-hmm. is, which is what's different, but he gives them a little more versatility and then he can play the outfield and first base. He gives them somebody who can run into one off the bench, which For I don't sure. think, which Phillips can't. And, you know, to me, Phillips' great strength is his defense, right? Well, you know, like they're probably not going to take Kiermaier out of games, right? Very often. Sure. You know, Kiermaier, Margot, Rosarena, like 
their outfield defense is still pretty damn good, even without Phillips being available to them. So I don't, I don't know. I think, I think in that spot you play for the offense, especially when it's somebody, especially because, you know, like you said, there's going to be at least three of these games that are started by left-handed pitching. Like Luplo is going to get those starts over Choi at first. So I, I think it's a relatively easy thought there and and you know maybe against a team like let's say they played Houston in the league championship series they would revisit that because that that team is so right-handed I mean yeah I mean um, you're gonna get, own... you get Framber and they probably are rolling out one lefty reliever in in, in Rayleigh and you know right uh, and in Taylor's the next round they might keep Taylor you know for for an LCS they might, but yeah. yeah but but it's not like it's not like any of those guys are lefties that you're super worried about either you know what I mean from a from a game planning standpoint so I think it's it probably has as much to do with the matchup as anything mm-hmm I think um, it's more interesting that Matt Barnes isn't on the Red Sox roster. I, I know he didn't throw the ball well at all. At all. Stretch, but, like, that guy was an all-star this year and signed yeah. a contract extension at the all-star break. Like, that guy is a huge part of the Red Sox plans. And I, that takes some stones, I think, to, to keep him off the roster. And it's not like the Red Sox are loaded with killer pen arms either. No. Although Brazier threw the ball pretty, you know, has thrown the ball okay in his last couple of outings. Sure. Rocket off the monster aside in the wild card game. But yeah, I mean, like Bar- Barnes is, I mean, Barnes has been one of their better relievers for a long stretch of time. Yeah. Um, National League, uh, last night we watched the Dodgers win one of the better wild card games you'll ever see. Um, filled with, with, it wasn't like a super crisp game. There was, Tons of teams not taking advantage of, of situations, um, but it was still very exciting because it had a lot of stress in it. Um, Chris Taylor hitting the game-winning home run in the ninth, and the Dodgers move on for uh, I think what is you know now being seen as the marquee matchup in the sense that you know the, the 106 win Dodgers and the 107 win Giants. Um, you know, part of the story here is the the injured first baseman with Max Muncie and Brandon Belt. Um, part of the story is, of course, it's the Dodgers and the Giants. Um, who've never met in the postseason. Um, and it's funny because even though the Giants won the division, it feels like the people are still almost talking about this in a bit of a David versus Goliath way. Let me ask you a question. Who's a more impactful loss for their team, Brandon Bell or Max Muncy? I think Ma- I think it's actually Muncy. Um, By a wide margin. and Because I I, A. Muncy's the better player. Um, but the other thing is like the red, the, the giants rather, as we, we've, you know, they can mention, they they mix and match as well as anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, they have ways they can work first base with, with Darren Ruff and guys like that. Um, you know, Beatty had a really good second half, but Beatty's starting, you're starting a, you're starting first baseman in a playoff game. Um, you know, and, and with Cody Bellinger playing center field. And so I think that just kind of the, you know, a Muncie's the better player and B it's a bigger drop off for the, for the Dodgers. For to, yeah. to what the option two is. I, I mean, I agree. I, and like, listen, I, Belt had a tremendous year, and I love. Brandon oh yeah, Belt. I think he's a really, really good player. But the depth of the Giants, it you know, Lamont Wade Jr. at first base basically provides the same production that yeah. Belt did. You know what I mean? Darren Ruff had a huge year overall, as you mentioned. So, like, they have some options there. Does it weaken their lineup because one of those guys can't play the outfield? Yeah, but it also might allow them to be a little bit better defensively in the outfield in some of those spots, which when they ran out of rough, rough and left, Slater and center, Bryant and right, 
outfield, it's not the best outfield defense. Chris Bryant, my hope is that Chris Bryant doesn't play right field at all in Oracle Park because I don't think it's a good matchup for him. Not because I don't think Bryant is athletic enough to handle it, but because that's something you kind of have to learn. And being dropped in the middle of the season to really learn how to play right field there because you've got to cover Like you're playing all the way over towards right center anyway. You've got the giant brick wall behind you. You've got triples alley in right center like it's a real challenge. The other part, and this was really noticeable, I thought, last night in the wild card game is Max Muncie is a son of a bitch at the plate. Can I say that on this podcast? Clearly, you've never listened to the show, but yes, no. of course. You um, he's a son of a bitch at the plate. He And, and here's what I mean. Like, th- that guy is, that is the toughest out in their life. Oh, yeah. It's the, it's the, think, it's the highest quality AB for sure. Yeah, yeah. it used to be Tur- Justin Turner. It's not quite that with Turner anymore because some of that twitch is gone, although you still don't want to face him with men on base. But Muncie, to me, is the guy that just, like, you can throw him five different pitches that are just on the edges of the strike zone. And if they're off by an iota, he's going to take. He doesn't chase. He doesn't go outside the strike zone. And you can make quality pitch after quality pitch, and he just spits on it. And I think he's a lineup changer for L.A., and, and I think that that is a pretty significant loss for the Dodgers not having him in there. And I really felt like they, they felt that, you know, him not being in what the four hole yesterday or wherever he would have hit in the top half of that lineup. It changed a lot a of their dynamic impact. for him. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, we saw, you know, obviously the Dodgers had to use Max Scherzer. Uh, Max Scherzer, um, and I mentioned this earlier, like I don't think you needed to be a, like, have a great baseball eye to see that Max Scherzer is having mechanical issues. Everything's a yeah. yank. Um, and he, and he yanks both ways. He yanks in and out. Um, and it's just, something's going wrong. It just seems, doesn't seem to be timed up. Right. Um, and, and we saw the problems he had in his last couple of starts in the regular season. You know, he's obviously, you know, one and two is going to be Bueller and Urias. Uh, do you have concerns about, I mean, you got to throw him out there. Obviously I'm not saying you pull him or anything like that. He's obviously going to start his next turn. Um, I think you gotta have some concerns at this point, no? Uh, I, I mean, I really don't. I, I mean, I, I think you lose a lot of money betting against Max Scherzer. <laughs> so, like, I, I just, I think you know, it's one of those things that he will get figured out. I'm sure he has already been diving into what's going wrong. No question. And he's just trying to figure out what it is that gets things um, locked back in. So, I'm really not worried about it. I mean, it, it's. You know, he's Max Scherzer. I mean, he's he's still throwing throwing the ball this year at a very, very high level. And and you know, the other part, and we we you know, this didn't get discussed a lot, I, I at least that I heard. So that's the first playoff game that Max has been in in a couple of years. And it's the playoff opener and it's game seven. And even veteran guys who've been through the postseason before, that first start is a little bit like opening day in that you kind of feel like you have to ease them into it a little bit because the adrenaline's running higher, especially in a, in a winner take all game. And that may have had as much an impact on his ability to locate as anything, you know, it, it, it could just be that, you know, he was, he, he, I mean, he battled his backside off, right? Like he, he, I mean, he really worked hard to get the, the 13 outs that he got, but, I wonder how much is like once you get into the flow of a postseason series, even if say, you know, 
and I think it would be shocking if they were facing elimination in game three, but if they were, it would feel a little different for Scherzer than it did going into last night. And, and you know, I don't, I'm guessing at this because obviously I haven't talked to Max about it, but I would think that there probably was a different level of adrenaline going into that game that you have to manage in addition to whatever he was dealing with. Yeah. And that's a, that's a high adrenaline guy to start with, obviously. Um, do you think it's kind of weird? You'd know better than I would. I, I, I feel like. Do you think it's kind of weird that we're sitting here on on Thursday afternoon? If you like, look at the scoreboard on on your phone or whatever, and you scroll to the next day, like there's still already tons of TBDs in terms of starters. Like there's already there's one TBD um, tomorrow or already or or Saturday. Like Sunday's nothing but TBDs. Like it, the the teams are really just kind of saying, here's the first two games, and I, I know some of that is kind of a a reaction to a five game series and, and your game three guy could start change dramatically if you're down O2 or, or, or vice versa. But it just seems like the TBDs are more, more than ever uh, going on right now. I mean, I think we've started to see that trend. Um, Last anyway, couple of years. That, really. that, yeah. The teams weren't necessarily willing to name like, so like let's take the example. So Sunday it's the American league game, right? So, White Sox haven't named Dylan Cease, but he's probably the starter, right? Houston hasn't named, I don't know, I guess it would be, would it be Luis Garcia or Jose Arquiti? I mean, I guess maybe you have to. It's probably Garcia. My guess is Garcia two, Framber three, right? No, Framber's pitching game two. Then I would go with, yeah, I think it's Garcia three then. So, I, you know, I think Garcia, um, you know, Garcia is probably it. But again, like you're waiting to see what happens here. I mean, mm-hmm. like. Like Houston's a great example of this. Like Dusty had a rotation all set in 2012, and went into Game One of the the um, division series against San Francisco, and Johnny Cueto last four batters. Right? right, he has to leave with an oblique injury, and suddenly it's bullpen to get out of the inning, and then Matt Latos is coming out of the pen. So, like, I think there might be some of that, and it's just that there's a hey, listen, let's wait and see. You know what we need. Let's not say anything until we have to. And I think the other part is that like teams are just a lot more cager about that stuff. You know, there there's one of the things that I don't like in the trend lately in in MLB in the way that things are covered, or at least the way things are coming out of teams is that they're beginning to treat it a little bit like the NFL. Like the, the big difference, and like just the state secrecy thing. Yeah, I mean, listen, we see everything all the time in baseball, right? Everything, of, uh, you know, it's every day for six months in front of our eyes. You can't treat it like it's the NFL. You know, most of the work in the NFL happens behind closed doors because they happen in practices. So I, I, I just think that there's some of that and not, you know, gamesmanship or not wanting to give a competitive advantage or stuff that doesn't actually matter even on the margins that right. somebody has decided does matter. Uh, it's eyewash, it, it, Kevin. It's eyewash is what it is. I did, and how. And, and, you know, in 2020, I actually, I thought it was great that the no off days because I thought it forced you yes. to use your depth. I thought that was the great best thing about it. Um, but it also forced a lot of teams to go with a pen game. Um, and one of those teams that has done a lot of pen games in the postseason is the Milwaukee Brewers who begin their series tomorrow uh, at home with the Atlanta Braves. And they are kind of pen game no more. Um, and they might have the scariest first three in a, in a, among all the playoff teams. So I actually think it's really interesting that they haven't named Freddie Peralta as the Game 3 starter because, and, and I know you talked about this a little bit last week with Ben, the Devin Williams I- injury is significant. And 
as much as like you're talking about what three or four innings over the course of a five game series, those are pretty high leverage innings. Oh yeah. If they're only going to limit Josh Hader to one inning appearance, which is kind of what Hader made it sound like, Peralta's got experience out of the bullpen, and if you're mm-hmm. looking for somebody who can give you multiple innings to help shut down a game, like it might be Peralta because their other starter options are decent. Like yeah, Lauer, Eric Lauer threw the hell out of the ball, and Adrian Hauser's pretty good too. Now, like Hauser could fit into that role too, but he's not, he doesn't have the swing and miss stuff that Freddie Peralta does. So I actually think that one is a little bit interesting. They're so deep in the rotation, somebody's got to go to the pen to help out. He might be the arm that's able to impact the have the most significant impact in leverage situations. Yeah, that's out of that group, thought. because I don't like you know I've seen a lot of Brad Boxberger. I've seen good bad, bad Brad Boxberger, and I've seen bad Brad Boxberger. When Brad things aren't going well for Brad Boxberger, it's home runs. Yeah, but overall and, he's had a good year for him. He's, he's had a, great, a very good great year, but he's him. but. If you're going to go into a one-run game and you've got to go to the heart of the order in the seventh inning and you want Boxberger against Freddie Freeman in that spot, right. just beware that if things go wrong, he's not going to get walked and singled to death. It's going to be a home run. And so I think that that's something that you have to factor into the equation. Now, that said, out of all these managers, and there's some really good managers in this. I mean, I think both managers in the American League, well, all four managers in the American League Division Series obviously have, have had great success, but Cora and Cash are two of the best. Tony basically invented modern bullpen usage. Dusty is vastly underrated. Like Doc has done a great job with the Dodgers. I think Kapler does an amazing job with the Giants. Like Craig Council's the best manager, I think, in terms of being a tactician of any of the managers. I think Craig Council is is if you if you kind of broke out aspects of managing, I think Craig Council is the best bullpen manager in this postseason for 100%, sure. Percent for 100%. sure. Um, I, I like the Peralta thought. It gets really interesting, and I you, I totally agree that he'd be the if you had to say, you know. Peralta, Lauer, Hauser, who you want like to get you six outs in the seventh and eighth, you're going to go with Peralta all day. Right. And especially against a team in Atlanta that, you know, Albie's weak side is the left side, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, you've got to worry about Freeman, and they have some depth on the bench, right? Like Eddie Rosario and Jock Peterson, you know, help to give a little bit more balance. But like yeah, Duvall. But they, you know, Jock only hits lefties, yeah. Right. You you want to attack or Duvall with a yeah. righties. Yeah. You know, yeah. Jock, Jock has never hit lefties. So, like, right. so like you attack Peralta with – you attack Duvall with a righty. You attack Swanson with a righty. I think I would want that sweeping ba- breaking ball against Riley, even though he's cleaned up so much of his game. You know, right. no, like you start going down the list of guys that you would line up against, and you want you can him facing it. the right-handed hitter. Solaire is another one, right? Yep. Like I would just like Freddie Peralta because th- Freddie's a different. He's not fastball Freddie anymore. He's complete pitcher Freddie. Like he's not just a one-trick pony. And so the fact that he has a couple of different breaking balls that work pretty well to me is like like if I want somebody facing Jorge Soler in a big spot, Freddie Peralta is a guy that's going to get him out, that I know is going to get him out. And, and you know, it, and that might have even been the case with a healthy Devin Williams just because Williams' stuff plays differently. He's got the, you know, his his screwball, basically, that he throws. That's a little bit different pitch than, than that sweeping breaking ball away from some of those right-handed hitters for Atlanta. Uh, interesting tidbit, the last, uh, last no-hitter I was at in person was Eric Lauer. Really? Kent State at Bowling Green. Me huh. and me and like forty three people watching that one. <laughs> was Urban Meyer coaching at Bowling Green then? Yeah, I, I have no idea. But Do yeah, you know who it, Urban Meyer is. I know he's a football coach, and I Do know, you know why he's in the news. I know. Here, so I know he's a football coach, and I know, you know he's that, a terrific dancer. I know he got into some sort of <laughs> thing this week, but I have no idea the details. Oh yeah, I'd say it's some sort of thing. So. <laughs> 
that that's what I know about Urban Meyer. There's nothing like you know. You really have to appreciate somebody who who writes a book on leadership, who then um, gets caught uh, dancing with somebody probably 30 years younger with them at a club, and is like, "Oh man, yeah, I just went out with some friends after uh, we took the grandkids out. The grandkids weren't <laughs> anywhere near him. Maybe they were at the club with him. I don't, I don't get the sense, especially since his wife who hasn't gotten a lot who, of anti tweets. Who hasn't gone to the club with their grandkids? Come on. <laughs> In the club with the grandkids. <laughs> it's my favorite uh, favorite 50 Cent song. Uh, in the club <laughs> with the grandkids. So uh, I want to talk about, that's the playoffs. Playoffs start uh, in, oh, 107 minutes. Um, I want to talk about some other baseball stuff. Okay. Um, I want to start with a team that's out of the playoffs, which is the New York Yankees. And the Yankees lost. And the Yankees are out of the playoffs. And the Yankees were a good team. They're also a flawed team. I, I think anyone would admit that. Um, but Yankee fandom, being what they are, um, it's, it's such a unique culture where it's like we didn't win a ring. Everyone's a complete goddamn failure. Right. And, and that, that's Yankee culture and it comes with the territory. Um, but this concept that because of that, that's related to that, that Brian Cashman is not a good GM just makes me roll my eyes and and say i have no idea what you're talking about like i i just don't get it at all it's like did he make some mistakes yes they all do um this dude has never had a losing year this guy is they, they always go to the playoffs and even with their resources that's a hell of a lot tougher than you think and to, to, to do what he does do it in that market in that environment with that culture I think Brian Cashman is one of the best GMs in baseball, and I, I don't understand why people are mad at him. It's because it, it's because we have all of this history of World Series or bust, most of which happened before divisional play. I was about to say back when if you got to the playoffs, you were in the World Series. But that's part. Of, but that's part of the mythology. That's that's part of where baseball's history can be um, a burden. Yeah. on a fan base and, and on a franchise. You know, I, I think that that's that's the issue. I mean, you look at them since since divisional play. What they they had the three straight championships they won in the late nineties. They had oh nine and they had seventy seven and seventy eight. Right. So, like, it hasn't happened all that frequently. I mean, no. it's happened, I mean that's a, that's a lot actually for yeah, a, of course a fifty two year span to win what six World Series titles. But it, it's not like it it happens every year. And I think that's where I think. Because it's like the, it's the, the burden of history at this point. Yeah, I mean, the further we get away from it, too, um, you know, when when we had that shift, the less understanding there is of what the league was like before that. So, I think that's where a lot of that is driven. I think if Brian Cashman were a free agent, somebody would fire their general manager to hire Brian Cashman. Yes, I mean, I, that's, I totally agree with you. And and it would be in a high profile spot. Um, I think, you know, like if like what were the mistakes that Cashman made? I mean, that's maybe trusting that that Glaber Torres could play shortstop. That I, to me is the mistake that he made. I, mean, I think like, that's one of them. I also think trusting Gary Sanchez to catch is a is a I I've Gary Sanchez has been a DH for years. Um and he's a, a real problem behind the plate. Um you know, I they they I thought they fixed the lefty power thing with Rizzo and Gallo. Um it's it's it was a still a bit of a stars and scrubs lineup at times. Like there were navigable innings in that in that lineup where you got to the end of it, and you're like, yeah, we can get through this pretty easy. Well, they played the entire year without their number three hitter. I mean, Aaron Hicks missing the season was it's, a huge loss. Yeah, it's very destructive. Yeah, nobody has talked about it. I mean, that's a, mm. that's a two way center fielder. 
right? So Brett Gardner ends up playing all right for a reserve, right? 90 OPS plus somewhere around there, 90, like probably right around 90 weighted runs right. plus, right? And like probably slightly below average defense for most of the center field, but he's like 37 years old and you were looking at him as a role player. Losing Aaron Hicks for the entirety of the season was a huge deal because that guy is a really good defender with a very strong arm and he's an extremely selective hitter, which they need in the middle of that lineup. And so you lose that guy and it's very difficult to replace him even if you are the Yankees, especially if your ownership is going to create you know, semi-artificial limits on what you're allowed to spend. So, yeah, he did – I mean – Listen, Gallo's a polarizing guy because he strikes out a ton and he's never going to hit for a high average. That guy's a hell of an outfielder. I still don't understand why they didn't play him in center down the stretch. Like, that would have been the better, but I thought the better fit for them. Um, you know, but like Judge and Stanton had incredible years. They're you both know, great, yeah. Rizzo was pretty good after they got him. You know, they also were without their the guy who led the American League in home runs in the shortened 2020 season for most of the year because of multiple injuries. So, like, so there's some of that. And it was a high risk rotation, although the rotation performed pretty well. It, the bullpen was supposed to be a strength. I don't think anybody expected that a world as Chapman would spend a month not being able to get people out. And they basically lost Zach Britton for, for you know, 75% of the season too. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there were some things that even the Yankees couldn't overcome that helped to lead them to that. But I will say this, I appreciate from cash and from the desire from Yankees fans that your goal should be to try and win every year because I do think that that gets misplaced or has gotten misplaced over the course of a decade and and as as much as we can say listen you're probably out over your skis saying that everybody should be fired because they lost in the wild card game I don't think it's bad to have expectations that your team is going to compete for a championship every single year. No no not at all um I mean but you know obviously the the a lot of the focus as well went on on to their manager Aaron Boone. Um, do you think Aaron Boone's in trouble? And then, I, more importantly, do you think Aaron Boone should be in trouble? Like I, I, I've never been blown away by him. I'll say that much. Yeah, I mean he's learning on the job in the biggest market, right? I mean, Booney didn't have any coaching experience. So, mm-hmm. like, this is this is a very difficult one for me because I'm friends with Aaron. And so yeah. Because he was on the broadcast side for a long time. And I love I love Aaron Boone. Like, he's he's a top-flight human being and a good baseball guy. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's pretty sh- sharp. And I think he has a really high EQ. Like, his understanding of, of people's emotions and dealing with people, I think, is really strong. And I think that, um, you know, I think that that was some of the criticism with Joe Girardi at times was that Joe was probably a little bit too tactical. And Joe is a very, um, Joe is very intense and very driven. And I think at times some of, well, he cares a great deal about people. I think sometimes that brusqueness can, can um, shield that a little bit, whereas Aaron's a little bit more open understanding He's not the biggest energy guy as a manager, but but he is, I think, in his players' corners, and I think they know that, and I don't think that that they quit on him or anything like that. So now, is he the best manager of a bullpen in the league? Probably not, but also he didn't have the best version of the bullpen that they were anticipating this year, so right. how do you evaluate that? And still, they had really good performances. You know, could he have done something different offensively? I don't know. I mean, he had two guys that were above average offensive performers all year in in Stanton and and Judge. And other than that, like 
what were his options? Like, who's the guy you hit and run with in that lineup? You know, who's all of a sudden going to start stealing bases? You know, can you make the case that he should have known sooner to move Glaber Torres to second? Yeah, probably. But who was his option at shortstop? They didn't oh, yeah, have exactly. One. You know, so I think that when you start looking at it that way, he was hamstrung a little bit by the by some of the roster construction, too. After I got done complimenting Brian Cashman for the job that he's done for two decades, <laughs> like there were some issues there that I, I don't think you can separate the two. I, I think if he really had been in trouble, we would have heard by now. Right, yeah. like the, I, I think the that's season's a really good point. three days over. Right, I know his contract's up, but like, I mean, if if they're going to make a change, they're going to make a change. I mean, it was almost immediately after the LCS that they let go of Joe Girardi, and, and we and we knew that well before that that he was likely in trouble. I haven't heard anything from anyone credible that makes it seem like that's the case with Booney. I, I've said it before. I'll say it again. You know, the perfect fit is for the Yankees right now, Carlos Correa. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, probably, and, and, he's a perfect fit for a lot of teams. And I, I, I know there's tons of Yankee fans like, no way we can get that guy. He's part of the, you know, the cheating Astros. You'll love him by April 20th. I guarantee yeah. it. By April 2nd, you'll love him. I'll tell you what, like, here's the problem is that he's also the best fit for Detroit. And yeah, uh, you know, he is, sure. uh, he is a, no, he, he is an organization he is. changer yeah, absolutely. for no, them I, in the no, same I'm way not, that Pudge was. Yeah, no, I'm not arguing with you at all he's not a perfect fit for Detroit. He absolutely is. I just thinking, and and you know, you know, Aaron Boone. I know Carlos Correa. Uh, Carlos, um, and this is a good quality. Carlos is going to to run to the brightest light. Um, I think Carlos would ha- would love to be the big guy in New York. Okay, and I, and I, don't I mean that's he, good. And I don't know if he wants to be like spend his first two years with a team that's getting better. Oh, I think Detroit. I think that'll turn fairly quickly. They're, they're, they're right the team year. that's on the camp. Yeah, next yeah. year they're going to be right in the thick of things. I, I think, I think it's interesting. I, I do. You know, he's close with Lindor too, mm-hmm. and so like the idea of those two kind of running the show in New York is really intriguing, um, oh, because that that would be a tremendous like. They're, I mean, those two guys are just tremendous personalities on top of it. So, um, I think that's a really interesting thought, but I still like, if I'm Detroit, I just like, what do you want? How many little yeah, season franchises check. do you blank need check. to make this work? Right. Like I, I, I just think he, he changes the complexion of that organization more than any of the, like you can go with Seager, but Seager's not a perfect defender in that. No, no. I love Trevor story. I think Trevor story is a complete player, but I don't think he's that transformative force in the clubhouse. that Correct. can be. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, you mentioned, the Mets and Francisco Lindor, um, you know, news came out, uh, I believe, I think Joel Sherman broke it, that the, the Mets had an initial discussion, or Steve Cohen had an initial discussion with Theo Epstein, and they both kind of agreed that it wasn't going to work out. Um, it's not you, it's me. Um, Billy Bean had a very strange interaction at, at kind of the post-game thing with Oakland, where instead of just saying, no, 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 he just kind of says, I haven't heard. Um, the Mets are obviously looking for a new president of baseball operations, number one person, um, Sandy Ellison will likely stick around in, in you know, more of an advisory ro- role and, and run the business side, which is, which is what he wanted to do in the first place. Um, who's going to run the Mets next year? Um, can I take field? Can I take the field on that one? Yeah, I'll give you the field. I mean, I, I just think like they're so focused, and and rightfully so. Because it's not going to be getting... Theo. I don't think it's going to be Bean. It's not going to be David Stearns as much as everyone talks about it because he's you know done a great job in Milwaukee. And he's from Queens and grew up a Mets fan. Um, 
that's not how David Stearns is wired. Like David Stearns. Well, it's also not how it's not it's also not how the owner of the Brewers is wired. You know, he's under contract. You're not going to Yeah, but for only one more year. He's only under contract through 2022. Mm -hmm. What my guess is Mark Antanasio is going to hand him a a giant extension because I I think that they work really well together. I don't think that Stearns is going to be in play at all. No, I don't either. And so like it's it's you know, it's the Mets and you know, it's it's a it's a media circus in New York and everything. So all these huge names are going to get thrown out. But I'm with you. It's not going to be one of these huge names. I mean, I think I think Billy's got the best chance. So, like, you start looking at relationships, right? So, okay. So, who has, who is in a position that could be named, that has enough experience as a general manager, that they could be named the president of baseball operations that has a connection to Sandy Alderson? That's how you have to do it. So, you start getting down the list pretty quick, and it's like, you know, Josh Burns worked with him in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a name. And Josh certainly would bring a level of credibility to to that job. Um, you know, Josh has, has never been able to get over the hump as a top executive, but he would be coming through theoretically from the Dodgers. Um, you know, he, I know he'd liked the right situation to be able to run uh, an operation. I think Josh handles himself extremely well with the media. I think he would be a, uh, a good executive in that regard. And I think he brings, you know, a scouting and player development background that, you know, whoever he hired as his lieutenant, he would have his pick of, you know, a bunch of different organizations. Plus, he's got ties to Boston. He's got ties to, to Cleveland. He's got ties to the Dodgers. He's got ties to a bunch of different spots. So that would be a name. I mean, as for other ones that would fit, I mean, I don't know. Like, they're not going to hire A.J. Hinch away from the Tigers to be the team president. So, mm-hmm. like, like unless you're going to do something like that, like, it's 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 tough to find the guy that matches up that – has ties to Sandy either, and, and and it's tough to really find them outside of Billy, who has ties to him from Oakland, um, because it's been so long since Sandy's been there. You almost have to look to the San Diego days, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, that, that it's just not. I, I don't know that it necessarily lines up for him with anyone there. So then you got to start interviewing people that you don't know, and you know, or people that have a tie to him through the commissioner's office from the time that he was there. It it gets. It, it's very difficult, I think, to try and figure out who's going to be the next president of the Mets, knowing that that's a pretty good job, I think, especially with an owner that's willing to spend. I think it's no, I think it's a real desirable job, despite kind of the the, the Mets got a Mets of the last um, few years and, and all the, the um, problems that they've had mm-hmm. in the last few years. I, I still think it's a very desirable job that anyone would want. But I do think that whoever they end up with, it's going to be someone that leaves a lot of Mets fans saying, oh, I have to figure out who that is because I don't know who that is. You know, as opposed to, oh, we got Theo or we got Billy Bean. Well, like, here's the problem, too, is that, like, you're so dead set on hiring a president because you're going to you're gonna get, theoretically, a higher level of executive. But you're not getting anybody to make a lateral move. No. So you're going to hire somebody who has to move from that number two spot anyway. So mm-hmm. who are who are the GMs right now that have a chance to be a president that you look at and go, man, they would be a president of a major market team. That's tough to figure out too. I have enough time trying to figure hard time figuring out who's going to be the next chief executive for just about any team, the way teams are trying to protect guys now. Right. I, I don't know I don't know where you go. I don't know who it is that you go to. I I um, do wonder if you dig one deeper in Milwaukee and go after a guy like Matt Arnold. Do you see Matt Arnold being a president of baseball operations in New York? Yeah. I mean, I, I can see him having that position. You know, I, yeah. I don't know about the in New York part, but I could see him ending up in that world. Um, I mean, I guess if you've got Sandy to kind of help buffer for a year, maybe mm-hmm. that helps. You know, 
Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, we, we also don't know who the owner is obsessed with, right? Like in terms of, mm-hmm. of who's, whose model he thinks is the best. And that, that could play a factor in it as well. Uh, one last baseball movie I want to talk about, um, and I, you know, you know, I know, you know, this person as well, cause he was, mm-hmm. he's you know, on your radio show on a, on a weekly basis. And, um, I, I, I've never had an interaction with Jace Tingler. I've ne- also never heard a bad thing about him as a, as a human being. Um, the Padres fired Jace Tingler after, uh, a miserable second half for that team. Uh, it kind of felt like a fait accompli, um, like whether he deserved it or not, it was one of those like, well, that's just how baseball works kind of moves. Um, like, what were your thoughts there? Like, I, 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 you know, I think it was a tough move for San Diego. Tingler's very close with AJ Preller. Um, but again, it's just kind of like, well, this is, this is how this works. If, if, if this kind of collapse happens, the manager goes. I, I mean, I, and I, I, so I've known Jace a little bit longer and I, I'm, I've always been impressed by him. I think he's a smart baseball guy. I think there's a lot of people that, that we have mutual friends that know him very, very well mm-hmm. who speak very highly of Jace. It was the wrong hire to begin with. Mm. I mean, I think he was put in a situation to fail. You had a, an organization that um, was had backbiting at a previous manager with no managerial experience at the big league level in Andy Green. And Green had far more managerial experience at the minor league level than Jace ever had. And there was backbiting about his requirements um, and his attempts to hold them accountable. So that, to me, makes that there's some issues the the makeup of the clubhouse um, to that. There were, there, that team kind of quit on him at the end of the 2019 season. So there was already that. So mm-hmm. then you don't bring in a strong enough personality to handle the strong personalities you have. And this is not, I'm not knocking these guys because uh, I like Machado. I like Hosmer. I like dealing with those guys, but they're bigger. Those are alpha male personalities and you need to have somebody that can handle alpha male personalities. And it's really tough to bring a guy whose only managerial experiences in winter ball in that to, to command that level of respect from the time that they come in. They may like Jace, you know, they may like him a lot, um, or, or maybe they don't, you know, it doesn't matter, but they don't, he doesn't have that, that gravitas. And that's why they screwed up when they didn't hire Ron Washington two years ago. I mean, Ron Washington was the runner up for the job. There's no better instructor of infield. There's no better person to hold individuals accountable for their work. There's nobody that does it with a better um, sense of the room than Ron Washington does. And all like for all the complaints about him bunting in Texas, like whatever. Right. I don't oh, care yeah. about uh, his game yeah. management. Yeah. That team is so damn talented. You just let him go. Right. And game tactics are our game tactics are. 6.5% of the job of a manager at this point. I mean, he, the, to me, like they should hire him right now. They should take him off the field from Atlanta and hire him right now. It's a mistake. The other guy that, if Dusty ends up going to free agency, which it sounds like he might in Houston, Dusty carries that kind of gravitas. Mm-hmm. But I think Wash is the perfect guy because he has a relationship with everybody in that front office already. Right. You know, they made some changes in, in their front office personnel, but they brought in guys from, te- like they brought now he has even, now he even, he has even more people he's connected to right. over there. So right. like, it's all people that you, you know, you know, you know where Wash struggles as a manager, but you also should have a great appreciation for the things that he does well. Mm-hmm. And to me, it is it was a no brainer two years ago, and it's an even bigger no brainer now. Right. That's a really talented team. Yeah, that's a talented team that that isn't probably quite as deep as the Dodgers and isn't going to have as deep as pockets as the Giants, but it's close. Did 
I didn't think that their roster construction this year was as bad as it ended up looking. I think a lot of it looked bad because they didn't get the production they thought they were going to get out of center field or left field. And they didn't and stay they healthy. Also, and they didn't stay healthy on the mound. Right. And they didn't have enough depth. They didn't build enough of like veteran starting pitching depth. So they were forced to go to Jake Arrieta and Vince Velasquez down the stretch. Right. So like those are the things. Those are easy things to repair. And you're going to get some of that back with Clevenger and with Morahone next year. And like, you know, hopefully another year removed from surgery, Lamette. Like there, there's some of that that's already going to come in. You're going to need to replace left field. You might want to move around. You know, Will Myers has one year left, although he was pretty productive. Like there's some things that you can do. You can do overall to to work on the edges of that roster that makes sense. But like you need to get a guy in there when he walks in the <laughs> the the clubhouse is going to command respect. And I I I mean, Wash is there. He's the guy. Do it. Call the press conference. Sign it now. He absolutely 100% should be the manager of the Padres. You mentioned du- you mentioned Dusty. Are you kind of surprised by that weird limbo in Houston? No, because it's – no, I'm not. Okay. Because he wasn't hired by the general manager. Right. It was such I mean, a, it was, with, that was such a weird thing. I mean, like, do you, like, they hired the manager before they hired the GM, and you worked with James. Like, I, I'm not sure that James Cl- – like, I don't know James Click real well. Uh, my, in my interactions with him <laughs> – Neither I, do I. I. Well, I mean – 2020 right so like i mean i don't know that that you know i don't know what their conversations are like between click and dusty yeah but I, it seemed like odd bedfellows to begin with right it, for sure and I, I you know i did have some involvement in the the uh, I, I i spoke to a couple of the candidates for manager um and i gotta tell you the guy who just blew me away was will venable Oh yeah, he's super smart. The Will, I mean, Will Venable's going to be he's an Ivy Leaguer. Yeah. He's going to be. We, we won't hold that against him. Um, <laughs> but Will Venable's going to be a really good big league manager. I, I thought you know, the, I was just blown away by him. The problem for Will Venable is that neither of the jobs that are currently open, and there's only two of them right are now, right, are, are good right fits for him. For him. Yep, I you agree with I mean? you. Yeah, you need you, you've gone through two inexperienced guys in each stop in New York and San Diego, and so you need somebody. Who's yeah, experienced. No, there. yeah, he, the, I would. Will Venable is not the guy I would hire in the Mets, but Will Venable is going to. And, and you know, I it, it's it's one of those things as well, like. It would be it would be in Will Venable's best interest to start with a a, a different team and a bad team because we 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 see it all the time, um, and we talked about it plenty on the show. Like AJ Hinch's first managerial job in Arizona wasn't good, and he wasn't a good manager. Gabe Kapler's first go around in Philly, he wasn't good, and he was not a good manager. Um, Terry Francona, Terry Francona, Philly. and all the way back to Joe Torre. You know, yeah. uh, you know, clueless Joe. Right. It was his fourth try as a manager before he it got it right. It takes a while, and like often, it's the second gig where guys figure it out. But Will Venable, like, uh, I'm just gonna say it again, it's gonna be a really good manager. Um, we'll take a break. You'll listen to a song by the Decibels, and I'll explain why in a second. And we'll come back. We'll talk about our musical guest, the Decibels. We'll read your email. Um, we'll have an extended catching up with Mike Farron. I kind of want to talk to him about the the year that was for the 2021 Arizona Diamondbacks, as well as um, kind of the current state of baseball broadcasting and some of the things that the pandemic brought about that that Michael was a a vocal advocate for. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back. i 
Back to the podcast. I'm still here with Mike Farron for some reason. <laughs> it's because you're paying me for this, right? I mean, I spent hours and hours. Just hours preparing, right? Appearance to get paid, and <laughs> that's what happens, right? Exactly. It's how it works in the world of podcast. Uh, you just <laughs> listen to uh, a fantastic track by the Decibels. I'll tell you why you're listening to Decibels. Who were a previous musical guest? Um, so I asked Mike on Monday. I believe he could co-host this week. He said yes. And then I moved my attention to uh, doing things like live chats during games at Fangraphs and getting ready for a game story and uh, putting together the uh, postseason preview episode that came out on Thursday. Or what is that? On Thursday. Yeah, it's Thursday today. Good job. And um, and then I yesterday afternoon, I started putting together the agenda for this. And, and I was doing rolling through it. And I got to this. And I went, oh, shit, I never got a music guest. <laughs> and so... Um, so now we'll play a favorite. This is the Decibels, who I love. Um, this is a, a, a punk trio from Lyon, France, uh, led by Fanny and Sabrina, who met at elementary school and have never left each other since. Uh, they are awfully fun. Um, this is all off their, their latest record, which uh, was recorded in Chicago uh, by Steve Albini at Electric Audio in Chicago, the same studio where the theme song for this song was recorded and produced. Um, but they're great. If you want to learn more about them, go to decibels, D-E-C-I-B-E-L-L-E-S dot bandcamp.com. You can get all their music there. They are uh, just phenomenally wonderful. And uh, at some point, they, they would like to record in Chicago again, and they hope to go to a baseball game. And as they told me, we hope it's more interesting in person than it is on television. <laughs> so uh, decibels.bandcamp.com. Thanks so much to them for, for letting us play their music on the show. Are you ready for emails? Sure. Email the show. Music at fangrass.com. Read them all. And we uh, read some of them on the air. Our first email comes from John. Is it the air if it's a podcast? Yeah. I mean, it's you're a radio guy. Through air. Things like radio and TV, nobody talks about them anymore. It's audio and video. Come on. You got to get with the times. Uh, I, you know, me, I'm a multimedia superstar. In your own mind, sure. Pretty much, yeah, you're right. Uh, but John says, hello, Kevin, and guest host to be named later. His name's Mike Farron. He's here with us. Uh, a couple years ago, I was playing Out of the Park, which is a baseball simulation game, and my farm system popped out a weird, fun, and useful player that I've never seen a good analog for in real life. And I was wondering how a real Major League front office would use and value him. He had between a 65 and 80 glove at every non-catcher, non-pitcher position. He had 60 power and base running, be it a 30-hit tool, and strike out a bunch. I used him as the ultimate utility player, positioning him as the number one backup at every position and as a pinch runner and defensive replacement. He ended up playing 140 games a year with a line that looked a lot like 2003 Tony Batista <laughs> and a couple of wins above replacement. 
Would a current major league organization actually use him this way, or would they just decide it was better to have a 70 glove at short with some pop and live with the lack of on-base skills? Or would he get stuck at AAA? Would they do what I did and trade him off when he started getting expensive? Uh, a, John, this I think this player would be super valuable in baseball. Um, you know, I, he's a better hit tool than this, but like it's kind of what Chris Taylor does in a way sometimes. It's kind of what Javier Baez does. Kind of like what Javier Baez could do at times. Um, I think how they would use him is very much dependent on the rest of the roster. Like on the right roster, he would just like you, you would just let him be a seventy shortstop who runs into some. Um, but on a really good roster, he would be. And I love these players. Like I think Chris Taylor is one of the best. I, I would have said this before the the, the home run last night is just. Um, like I think Chris Taylor is one of those valuable pieces in baseball. These guys who can do what you need and like you're you're comfortable giving you know, 130 games and 500 ABs to, and they'll play somewhere because you're always going to need someone somewhere. And especially you think about what happened this year with everyone getting hurt. Like those guys became even more valuable because you know what? Your left fielder gets hurt. Great. We'll play Taylor there. Second baseman gets hurt. That's fine. We'll play Chris Taylor there. Like you always had an answer to, to a hole. You know, and we talked about how important that is when we talked about some of the injuries for these teams in the postseason. Um, having like a really good player who could fill that hole is, is really something. I think this dude would make huge money and have a, a very long big league career. I agree. I mean, I think it, it's. I mean, when you're looking at depth, like, listen, if you if you had no better option at shortstop, and you've got a guy that's got a double plus glove and he's going to hit for power plus power, right? So if he's going to you know, hit in the and he can run twenty five homer range with speed and a good glove at shortstop. I mean, that's like we saw a lot of those in the early two thousands. Both Alex Gonzalez's were those players. Yeah, you know, yeah. Right. I mean, those and those guys were. I mean, those were shortstops on, on championship caliber teams, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so like you hit some home runs, you catch everything that's hit to you. Like, you, I mean, that that I would think about building a, a team around him at short. But if you were deep enough where you could use him at multiple different positions, and you know, you knew you were going to get well above replacement level production from him over the course of 140 games, then I would be all in. And I think that would be a guy that's. I mean, that's a guy that's that's with similar to Ben Zobrist, only that he can actually play the most yeah. valuable middle of the field positions in short and center field. So, so fewer, a little bit less on base, but more defense there. I mean, that's, that's a guy that's getting, you know, 60 or $70 million. Yeah. You know, he might get a figure. I mean, he might make eight figures overall, but it's probably like if, if he's, you know, a free agent at, at 29 is going to end up with, you know, a five-year deal in the $70 million. Yeah. Which means a more valuable player than like what Marwin Gonzalez was, you know, for sure. $50 million guy. Yeah. No, it, it, he'd be, he would do great. He'd be a star. Uh, our next email comes from Benjamin and Benjamin says so many times throughout the season, you've vaguely alluded to advanced tactics. The giants have employed to optimize their lineups that go beyond platoons. You even mentioned that other teams are trying to figure out what they're doing and how to recreate it. I would be fascinated to hear more about that. If you have any further insight to share. Um, so again, for those, I mean, not everyone listens to every second of the podcast. Um, most sane people don't do that. And so they do, uh, I know a person who works for a team that is not the San Francisco Giants, and when the San Francisco Giants lineup is announced, he tries to reverse engineer it and try to figure out why they chose those players. And and you know, it's the easy stuff to talk about is like, oh, this guy hits lefties and this guy hits righties, and you know they platoon very well. And every team knows how to platoon. Um, the Giants are definitely doing, and other teams do this. I just think the Giants are doing something a little more and a little better that I'm not. I I can't tell you exactly what it is. I'm trying to figure it out myself. Um, that involves, first of all, pitch type. Um, 
there are obviously, and, and you, know, you can look up these kind of numbers on the StatCast. There are guys who hit fastballs. Will Smith of the Dodgers destroys fastballs. Right. Just destroys them. Um, there are guys who hit breakers really well. There are guys who hit off-speed really well. And there's an aspect of that. And there's also some kind of pitch location tendencies involved that, that I think are there. Um, you know, in a world where, you know, big league guys can command their ship, but even like 50 command is just kind of fills the box well. And there are all sorts of really good pitchers who still tend to locate within the zone, either arm side or glove side. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're facing a righty who tends to stay arm side and you have a lefty who likes it inside, that lefty might not play, even though Flatoon says he should. Um, the fact that he's not going to get balls in his wheelhouse, even from a righty, are go- is going to you know play into that decision-making. So there's definitely some pitch type and some pitch location stuff that's going on with their lineups and how they're doing things. And and I'm still trying to figure them out, and so is a lot of other teams. But um, I, I, think they're, I think who they play, when they play them, and where they play them, they do better than anyone in baseball. I think it's 80% handedness, at least, though. And I think that that's – I think – one of the reasons why they've been successful is that they have no problems running a hockey line shift, right? And and so, like, when you get to the middle of the game and you're in the key spot... Right, they have no problem pulling you, five dudes. Yeah, right. like, you go to the lefty and all of a sudden they're going to have, they're going to have, like, you know, they're going to have the fourth line come over the boards and it's going to be three right-handed hitters and, and they're going to take advantage of that. Um, I think that that's a huge aspect of it. I do think that there is some, I would think that, that probably pitch recognition is part of it too. You know, if you're dealing with a, an offhanded fastball changeup guy, I mean, being able to pick up that difference is really important. They have identified guys that don't chase re- a lot. Um, their chase rate, I think, is lower than the Dodgers. Um, Dodgers are actually further back than normal this year, I think, the last time I looked at this. Um, but they, there were some... I think that there's some some real simple things that they do well, and and one of them is that they just never let the game situation or or the name of the on the back of the jersey get in the way of platoon advantage. Right. I think that's the biggest thing, and that they have buy-in from all the players on that, which is huge. I think is what really the Rays, they, the, creating the culture, the, you know, the Rays have done the same thing. Yeah, but it's culture, doing it with veteran guys. Stuff. Yeah, it's, like it's there's kind a big difference when you're doing it with Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford and Evan Longoria mm. than when you're doing with it on on Joe Arb one. You know. Yeah, and it's, it's fun, like, and if you see the the Giants lineup. Like you probably name the players who you know are going to play all nine innings. Like if you look at the lineups in in this Astros White Sox game that kicks off in about an hour, um, and part of it's because they're you know it's also a murderer's row of great players. But like the first seven Astros are playing all nine, and Maldonado is going to play all nine unless he comes up in a really big plate appearance. You know, with runners on base in a close game, they might make a switch there. Um, you know, the 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 White Sox their first five are going to play all nine, hmm. but you know the Giants. Posey and Crawford. Yeah, that's basically you know? it. You know? Especially with Belt out. With Belt yeah. out, it's Posey and Crawford. Posey but, and Crawford are going to play all nine. That's it. And Bryant. I mean, Chris and Bryant, Bryant. yes, I'm sorry. Yes, too. Chris Bryant I mean, as well. Chris Bryant changed the complexion of that lineup some too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's it. I mean, Bryant, you know, like even early in the season, there were spots where they'd hit for Belt. Or Belt would sit against the toughest lefty. You know, Darren Ruff would get that. But, but like watching Darren Ruff have a 900 OPS against right-handed pitching, like that gets your attention, right? Like that's that was supposed to be his weakness. So that to me is about figuring out where the matchups are and and how guys match up with with you know uh, certain pitchers. And so 
I think there's there's something to be said for that. But I think the other part of it is something that it's difficult to get too deep in the weeds on, which was, you know, the Giants didn't build this to be a 107-win team. They built it to be competitive. Right. And sometimes you just have a year where everybody hits their 90th percentile projections. You know, mm-hmm. and that's and, and I think when we were on Stephen Goldman's podcast last week, it kind of alluded to this that or I didn't allude to it. I mentioned it. You know, I go back to, in 2013, the Red Sox had this incredible year where they'd signed all these veteran guys. And like all of a sudden they make this this improbable run from last place to the World Series. Right. It's, you know, John Lester and David Ross and, and um, you know, um, Shane Victorino and, mm-hmm. and you know, like all, all these guys that came in that were just kind of role players that Johnny Gomes that had these great years for them. And if you talk to the Red Sox people, I remember emceeing Saber Seminar the next year, and everybody was there was like, I think Ben Sherrington was like, yeah, everybody hit their 90th or 80th percentile projection. Like, when that happens, like, that's not what we anticipated. We thought it was going to be a competitive team in the 80s and the win somehow, and then, like, you catch lightning in the bottle. And so, like, that can happen. And I think that's a lot of what happened with the Giants. I mean, I think it it you know speaks to the projection systems had them in the mid seventies for wins and they exceeded that by like thirty-five. And it's not like they had rookie Buster Posey coming up. Now they had Buster Posey put together his best offensive season in six or seven years. And I think that, that I think that year off did wonders for him. Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you what, I saw him in spring training twenty twenty. And we were in Giants camp and we were doing our spring training show. And Buster was in the cage. And it was one of the first days that he was working out on the field. It was late in camp because mm-hmm. they were one of the last stops before everything shut down. And we were watching Buster take batting practice. And it was like it was like when Willie Mays Hayes popped everything up in the cage in Major League. Like it was, it was just pop-ups and there was no legs and there was nothing. And he was getting frustrated. And you could kind of feel like everybody was walking on eggshells around mm. him. Like he did not look like this guy. Yeah. And watching him play the, the seasons previous, like he still had good bat control and good hands and he could serve a ball the other way, right? To, to pick up a double or a key base hit, but he didn't really drive it. And I think the, the combination of the hip surgery and the time off, you're right, did wonders for him. And now he just, he's got his lower half beneath him. He still has tremendous hand-eye coordination. You know, he's a Hall of Fame player, in my opinion. I, anyway, I mean, he's he yeah. he would get my, you know, if I voted for such things, he would I would vote for him based on what he's done in his career to this point. But this has been a tremendous season. And Crawford has been great, too. I mean, he really has been their best player overall. He's been remarkable. And let me, and I know you don't care about awards. Like, I don't care about awards. But Brandon Crawford's going to get two first place votes, I bet you, from the San Francisco writers. And everybody's going to lose their shit on, on that. Good, day. good. I, There's I, your projection. I love people losing their shit over award stuff because it's just so dumb. Uh, you think Chris Bryant's staying in San Francisco? Like, I, I, I don't think it's a slam dunk, but you know, if you were setting odds in Vegas, that'd be your favorite, right? I would think so. I mean, unless Philly's going to spend, I mean, they could use a left fielder. I, I, I just think, I, you know, close your ears, put, put your fingers in your ears if you live in Chicago and you're a Cubs fan. I think Chris Bryant really wanted to get to free agency and really wanted to get to the West Coast. Um, I think he definitely, I mean, the Giants were the team that he rooted for growing up, so mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me if he were there. And I wouldn't be surprised if he had interest in being on the West Coast. But I also don't think that you hire Scott Boris as your agent with the idea that you're going to go to a place that you're the most comfortable. You hire him because he's going to get you the most money possible, which I don't have an issue with. I think that's great. Like if I could hire Scott to be my agent, I would. But, but I think that that's, I think, some of that gets a little bit overblown. That said, I think the Giants 
need a star player going forward. And clearly the Crawford extension has taken them out of the shortstop market. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, to me, your best options are Bryant or, or bringing Marcus Simeon back to the Bay. Yeah, it's just a really good, it's a, such a good fit. Simeon would be great for them. Jesus. Simeon would be great for a lot of players. You want to yeah. talk about, you know, we were just talking about, we were talking about Detroit and, and the culture changer. Simeon's that guy too. Yep. Mar- Marcus Simeon's like a 70 clubhouse guy. Like right. He's, he's exceptional. Like the, he would be, I would be willing to overpay to get Marcus Simeon into my clubhouse. Our final email comes from Mike, not Mike Farron, but another Mike. There are many people named Mike. And Mike says, how pissed does a manager get at a player who does something during a game to get the player and the manager thrown out of it and suspended? I would have to imagine that there can be a bit of a rift for him if you're taking money out of the manager's pocket. For example, does Charlie Montoya hold it over Ryan Barucki's head for throwing at Kiermaier? Does the org do something for Montoya to compensate him for losing a game's pay? Um, let's start with the last question. Uh, if you are fined by Major League Baseball, uh, it, that is on you and and the team. Um, I am now making air quotes. By the rules, cannot pay your fine. You are responsible for your fine. There are ways around that, Mike, such as maybe sponsorship, ed- sponsorships, <laughs> and and even you know all companies have it at their discretion to provide end of year bonuses to employees. Um. Now, in this specific case, like, I mean, we don't know. We weren't in the dugout. We didn't, we don't know what the signs were. We don't know what was talked about. It's quite possible that, I don't, first of all, I don't think Brecky was necessarily throwing Kiermaier in that one. But, it, you know, it's quite possible that manager, if the manager calls for it and it happens, you know, and he throws it and the guy gets suspended, you can't be mad at your pitcher. I've never known of any situation where a manager, like, held it to a player for getting suspended. I've never heard of no, one. Do you know I, re- I remember. No, I remember um, Dustin Pedroia getting upset. You remember when, when Machado took out Pedroia and hurt his Yes, knee? yes, yes, and yes. And two yes. days later, Machado got smoked and Pedroia went, that was them, not me. I want you mm-hmm. to know that was them, not me. Right. Pedroia didn't have a problem with the slide, even though as much as Red Sox fans did, I think he would, you know, he was probably disappointed by it. But to me, I read that as he knew that his footwork wasn't in the right spot, right? So to be able to get out of the way. So um, I could be wrong on that, but but that was at least the read I got from Pedroia on it. Um, you know, like, I don't think that it's necessarily universal in that. But, I mean, come on. Like, with the Kiermaier thing, like, he was getting high fives from his teammates when he came back to the dugout. Yeah. Like, Charlie Montoya may not have put out the hit, but he didn't call to, it off. To say that to say that, that that was an accident is like, if you buy that, then I've got some, some <laughs> oceanfront property near Yuma that you might be interested in. And so, I, again, like, if he didn't call it off, like, you knew it was going to happen, and he can't be mad. At the Did you order the code red? <laughs> You can't handle the truth. Um, send us emails to musicoffangrass.com. They're an important part of the show. We like reading them, and they create interesting discussion points. It's time to catch up with Mike Farron. Mike, are you ready? I'm, I'm ready to be caught it up. I just want, I want to start by talking about the 2021 Diamondbacks, um, a team oh, no. you are close to and watched every inning of because it is your job. Um, you know, I don't think anyone thought this team entering the year was going to lose 110 games. Um you know, I don't think people thought they'd necessarily compete for a playoff spot either. They were kind of in the middle. And there are a lot of reasons this happened. Uh, you know, I think people, oh, the Diamondbacks were awful. And they were, they played awful, but a lot of it was like kind of stuff out of their control. They went, at times went for weeks 
without anyone, zero for five of their anticipated starting rotation being mm-hmm. available. Um, what is your kind of big picture presentation to the ownership assessment of the season? Um, <clears throat> you spent a f- four-week stretch where five members of your starting rotation were, or start, starting lineup were out, and then you spent the last – uh, or the next six weeks with four members of your starting rotation that were sidelined. So you, you, as soon as you got your lineup back, you lost your rotation. Um, didn't have a particularly good bullpen to work with. You also didn't have the financial resources that had been committed the year before because of, because 2020 was what it was to be able to add significant depth to be able to make up for some of that. I think almost all of the eight and 50 stretch that they had was due to the fact that they, and as much as people want to say, well, injuries aren't an excuse. Well, the kind of the reason that happened. I mean, when you when you're not particularly deep and no, you lose, no, no team in baseball mm-hmm. can survive losing like four pieces of the rotation. Right. Oh, well, on the heels of losing five members of your starting lineup. So, like, would they have been? I mean, I I think they played at about a ninety loss clip the rest of the way. You know, and some of that was after the trade of Escobar. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. that's probably more like, you know, 75 and 87 or, or 72 and 90 was probably closer to the true talent level on that club. So I think that that's when you look at the record by itself, that's the first thing that I would take out of it is that that they they were not trying to build a hunt. This was not a team that was looking to tank um, that. The, in fact, this is not a, a an ownership thing necessarily, although they don't care for it. This front office has no interest in tanking. That's not mm-hmm. who Mike Hazen is. That's not. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he is a, just. He is morally opposed to the idea of intentional losing. So they had a terrible year, and one of the bright spots was they got a pretty good idea of who some of the guys are going to be for the next good Diamondback team. So mm-hmm. Dalton Varsho should be a big part of that. Um, his second half was tremendous. Uh, Josh Rojas, who I know you were you were upset that the Astros traded in the Grinky deal, is almost held up the deal. It almost yeah, held up the deal. He, the fourth player in the deal was the difference in that deal getting made. Yeah. And he's a good player. Like, I don't know that he's a star. I think he's probably a, a regular, uh, kind of in the vein of the, the email question that we got, although he'll get on base more. But, you know, second base, left field, right field, maybe a little bit of third. Um, get on base some, um, use the whole field. What do you think his best position is? Because my, Batter's box. Yeah, my issue with Rojas was, that, and I described, this is how I always described him, was like he's one of those guys who can play a lot of positions, but none of them especially well. The th- which is really so like, and and I think some of that is unfair. I mean, I think he made some improvements in the outfield, but he actually has tremendous baseball instincts. I think his instincts are great, mm-hmm. and so like he can make up for some of the physical limitations when he has to play shortstop by if he doesn't have to think about it and just make incredible reaction plays. And he's made some incredible reaction plays there. But I think as a as a a guy who doesn't stay in one spot for all that long, but you can move him around. You know, like he's a little bit like Kevin Biggio without the crazy walk rate. Like probably better hitter, better hitter less on yeah. base, but but that kind of player who can move around. So so Rojas is a good good fit. Carson Kelly's year got train wrecked by a broken toe and then a broken hand, but um, for the most part has been off to a great start. Yeah. It was pretty good. Yeah, and and crushed lefties. You know, Marte is uh, maybe the most underrated offensive player in the league. I mean, he's a legit seventy hitter with with average to, to 
tick above power. Um, and I think second base is probably his best spot. The hamstrings yeah. uh, really impacted him defensively in center field. And he was more, um, you know, using his athleticism to run down balls before that. Cause he just didn't have that much experience there. So, so I think you've got, you know, some of those pieces, I'm still a little bit, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure what Pavin Smith is yet. I mean, I think it, it, the fact that he can play a competent corner outfield is, is good for him because I don't know that he's going to tap into the power consistently yeah, enough. I just don't, I, yeah, I, Never but been he, a big believer in that one. I just, yeah, I think it's a fourth outfielder, yeah, extra first baseman, like nice lefty bench bat. But that's not bad either. No, it's I mean, a piece. Like it's, it's I mean, a piece. it's not you yeah. know, especially when you take it in the context of that draft. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, that was not a great draft. No. So in 2017. So, um, so overall, I think they got some answers on some of their position players, and I think you know Zach Gallon will be better next year because hopefully he won't have to spend three different stints on the injured list, and um, I think Bumgarner made some adjustments as the year went on to be more of a pitcher, so I can see them being a bit more competitive but also like starting to give more playing time to some of the younger guys. Alec mm-hmm. Thomas had a big year in AAA. Oh, God, uh, yeah. Jake McCarthy actually is a pretty yeah, interesting yeah, no, player you, now. You, 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 seem to, you seem to become a big Jake McCarthy fan. So I'm, I'm interested in him because he runs really well. He can play center field. He went through some pretty significant swing adjustments. Um, and there, he went from being a guy who kind of had this reputation like his dad did in pro ball um, of being a slap and dash kind of guy to being what his brother was viewed as before the back injury at UVA. Mm. Joe was you know, kind of power hitting corner guy, although Jake can stay in center. He's strong. He has, I think he also has good instincts. Um, I'm really curious to see what he does going forward. It's the minor league, so I don't put much stock in it, but he put together pretty good numbers against lefties. The at-bats got better as the year went on. Um, I had talked to one scout who actually thought he could be a major league regular in center field, which I that was before he came up, and I went, whoa, like that. I was like, okay, based on you know what, what wasn't a tremendous line in AAA, I was a little bit surprised, but I think he's a guy that definitely can be a piece on a good team. So mm-hmm. they have some elements that are moving there. They're going to be a little bit younger going into next year than they were this year. They have some serious bullpen repairs that they have to make, but um, I don't think that they're going to be a, a hundred loss team again. I mean, I think that they're they're. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a better chance of them losing fewer than 90 games than there is of them um, losing more than a hundred. Right. Um, you know, Tori Lavulo is coming back and, and, uh, and should. Um, yes. You know, I, it, it's when the Astros fired Bo Porter and had a managerial search, uh, the three finalists were AJ Hinch, Tori Lavulo and Davey Martinez. Um, I talked to all three of them and Tori Lavulo was, was the runner up and a close runner up. And he was great. Um, obviously put in a really tough position this year. Um, and, and, you know, even little things, all the stuff we saw as far as the injuries and then, you know, things behind the scenes, um, you know, he's very close with Mike Hazen, who's going through um, just a tragic situation right now. Yeah, his wife has geoblastoma, which yeah. is a, and a very aggressive form of brain cancer. And they have, like, the Lavellos are their, their support system in mm-hmm. Phoenix. And, you know, they have four boys that are under the age of 15. So, yeah. like, it's it's not a great situation for, for Mike and Nicole. And it's they're wonderful people, so you, you absolutely feel for them. Yeah, Mike, I, I'm a huge Mike Hazen fan. Uh, as a person, I think he's. Me too. I think he's fantastic, and also, um, I would say, and obviously, it's not the case right now, but maybe 
the funniest GM in baseball. Like he is, he is, he has a very, a very like low key sarcastic sense of humor that I like. That's interesting. I think he definitely is the most self deprecating. Yes. Um, but anyway, so back to Tori. Tori, uh, you know, put in a rough spot, but Tori's still seen. I think. I think even by the industry as a guy who's a good manager. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, I, I, I mean, listen, it's tough when you've lost 110 games. It's brutal. And you don't really have a bullpen to go on, so you understand why there would be calls for it. And th- this is a tough one for me because I'm pretty close with Tory, and um, you know he has been one of those those people that has been more than um, more than willing to deal with my know it all um, attitude and questions, and has been extremely patient with me, and um, has been willing to explain you know all sorts of decision making, and if I've got you know questions about um, you know approach or why he did things, he's very open in answering, and he's very confident in the decisions that he's made, but he's also willing to say you know I screwed up, um, and I think the players you know the players never shut it down for him. You know, which I think is a pretty good indication. Now, some of it was the makeup of the roster. Like in the first half, having a guy like Stephen Vote, you know, even when things were going bad, where he was busting his ass every play, like that helps. But I think that there's there's just an awful lot to admire about Tory. Now, is he a perfect strategist? No, but I think he definitely improved, um, especially when it came to being more aggressive on the offensive side. Um, you know, I think he he has a pretty good idea. I think he's probably about like an average manager of the bullpen. But I think every that happens in the room he's really good at he's very good at communicating with people he's one of those people that and you probably got this like you spent what an hour with him two hours with him when you yeah an hour that, yeah. That, and like you walked out of it going man i feel like i've known this guy my entire life yeah and, and, I, and, and he wanted to know more about you yep. than you wanted to know about him yeah he was great special was guy really i was just blown away by him um i, I want to move you know from from kind of the micro of, of the dime back to something more macro which is um you are a baseball radio guy. I, I, I don't. I don't know how many. I, I feel like I met you twenty years ago, and you were at the time, you know, producing David Kaplan's show on WGN in Chicago. But you, I, baseball radio has been your life forever. Um, and this year, you were uh, very vocal about the situation, uh, the pandemic-based situation that that many baseball broadcasters were going through. Um, in particular with having to call games off of television because they were not traveling with the team. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, what do you want me to say? Do you want me to say how awful it was? Do you Go, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean like, you weren't, you you didn't mess around here. Like, you were very, very vocal about, like, this is bullshit. I, I hated it. And it it sucked a lot of the fun out of the job. And not for the, you know, getting to fly on the charter and stay in hotels and have per diem or anything like that. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with the fact that, that you lost the ability to do the job to the best, the best that you could. Now, some of that was the case for everybody who covered a team because access was limited to being on the field. Um, But there and so the amount of time that you got to spend with players to get to know them, to be able to share their stories was extremely limited, but also anything that you heard from our broadcast were, you know, I did, I did 31 games, I think this year mm-hmm. and all but four innings of them were off of a monitor. So if you hear me get excited, you're hearing me get excited like it would at the TV. And I think it sounds forced and I think it sounds like shit. And I think one of the things that, that the league and teams never really had as a priority was finding a way to get their broadcasters 
back onto the road, getting him in, into the tiered system that they had to be able to really share that with the their fans, with the fans of, of the team. I think, it to me, it's the listeners and the viewers that ended up suffering as a result of this because you may not have noticed it or you may not have paid close enough to attention to it, and, and that's fine, but the quality of the work that we were able to do this year wasn't the same as what it had been before. And the thing that was really frustrating is that there could have been ways to fix it, even for those teams that um, were not we're, we're not at 85%, which we were one of the teams that not, did not reach the vaccination rate. Once those teams got to that, teams had the option to travel their radio broadcasters, but they really didn't, their TV. And so what could have happened is they could have worked us into the tier system. They could have expanded it by four people or five people to mm-hmm. be able to, to do that, to get them back on the road, to have testing. You know, I would say that probably it's closer to 95% of broadcasters were vaccinated this year. Um, you know, you run into problems if somebody were to have a breakthrough case? Yes, absolutely you do. Is that a concern? Yes. Are you doing it for the safety of the player? Absolutely. But in a lot of those instances, the players were a bigger threat to those who were vaccinated than than the vaccinated personnel were to the players who were unvaccinated. Right. So I think I think there one of the big issues that we faced was that there was there was no one there is no one really in the league office that handles this. Right, that they they don't really have it's um, completely on the team. Yeah, of a feel. Yeah, there, there's no. This was a team by team decision, right? And so there was never anyone in the league office that could mandate it. There's not the person who's in charge of broadcasting is a very smart person, but they do not have any broadcasting experience. And the people that work underneath the people in broadcasting are people that I, I enjoy being around um, an awful lot and have known and liked for a long time. But the problem is that they just, they have not been uh, boots on the ground broadcasters. And so having an understanding of what the need was for us was, was difficult. It, it sucked most of the fun out of the job. I think more than 110 losses that had a bigger negative impact on me this year than anything, just not being able to tell the stories the way that we want to be able to tell stories. And and to be clear, you don't think finances played a, a big role in this Oh, decision? no, absolutely. I think it did. It, okay, you I think mean, it I think did. it did 100% for television. Because that's a bigger crew. Um. Yes, but there is some technology that's coming that's going to make that a little bit smaller crew. They're going to go to a cloud-based, or at least the plan is to try and go to a cloud-based technology that would allow the broadcasters to travel, but you wouldn't have you know three or four more people around it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there were certainly some places that, that that was an issue. But like the Phillies deserve a lot of credit because they took their radio broadcasters and put them in Tier 2. So even before they reached 85% at the end of oh, the so season. Oh, so wait, wait, no, no, back up a second. So teams did have the option to put their radio team into a tier. Uh, yeah, apparently. And the Phillies exercised that option. And the Phillies option. exercised that. That was important to the Phillies I didn't to know get that. their broadcasters back on the road. Um, so, you know, like you said, you called, what, 30, 31 games, you said? Something like that, yeah. So, you know, in, in, in June, and the Diamondbacks are – playing an away game. The Diamondbacks are, are playing at Los Angeles, okay? What is your day like? Like, do you, you, you do still go, you go to the ballpark, but you go to Arizona's ballpark, correct? Yeah. And you yeah. sit in, in, did you sit then, therefore, in Arizona's radio booth on Press Row? Yes. Yeah, we did everything from our home radio booth. And so you sat in a dark, quiet stadium watching the game on television. Yeah, usually with the air conditioning not on. Ooh. 
Um, that's just, I mean, beyond the fact that you're only watching on television, that didn't that add a weird dynamic to it? Oh, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it, there's no atmosphere, right? So, right, like, there's it's, no energy. It's, we have, you know, two announcers and um, uh, an engineer in our booth. There's two announcers in the television booth next to us with their stage manager. And then down further in the other booths are the pre- and post-game hosts. So they're probably like, you know, 15 people on press row and then whoever else is working in the truck. And that's it, like in a quiet ballpark. You know, and and like some of the horror stories from people like who called games with other stuff going on, like the Brewers who got their people back on the road before they could were doing the game from the from American Family Field while the state championship was going on behind them. Oh wow! Right. So like so like Jeff Levering is calling a game against the Nationals on radio while while the state championship game is happening at there. We had a fashion show one day. They ran out the ballpark to be able to make a little money, right? Which I understand. I would do the same thing. Yeah, of course. But it's happening at the same time that you're having to broadcast a game because they ran that out because the team was on the road. And so, like, there's a kid's fashion show going on while the game is being broadcast because you're watching it on the monitor. Did you find you kind of had to, like, fake energy? Oh, 100%. I thought everything was forced. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I go back and listen to, to any of the stuff that happened this year, and I can't – like, the, the worst for me is, like, I did the Bumgarner seven-inning no-hitter, right? And so yeah. I can't tell you whether or not that felt like a no-hitter. I just can't. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I wasn't in the ballpark. I we, We're at the mercy of this world feed of the television. So, you know, whatever Atlanta is choosing to shoot is what we're getting. So we're not getting reaction on the dugout. We don't know if everybody's leaving alone. We don't know how excited it is. We don't, we can't feel the tension in the stands. Mm. Like you can't, all of that, you're devoid of all of that. And so that was extremely frustrating um, because you're just hoping that you get it right. And then when there's a big play or something like you're getting crowd effects into your headset, but right. you don't see the full reaction. You can't look over and glance at the dugout. You know, you miss runners all the time. I have a lot of empathy for, you know, there were a lot of people who were making fun of John Sterling for missed calls. You've got two monitors in front of you. Try and watch two TVs at the same time, right? One that has 90% of your focus and the other that's got basically pixelated little men running around the field that Wait, gives so you what, everything. So what's, what, what's on the two monitors? So the one monitor is the program feed, basically what you're seeing on television. It's the the TV broadcast. And then the other one is a high home camera. At least for us, it was a high home camera where you could see all of the fielders and where they were. So you could see guys running around the bases. You could see where the fielders were running to to get the ball. You could see all of it. But the problem is that this last season, it was part of a mix that included the bullpen cameras Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. a scoreboard camera and all sorts of other stuff. So fortunately our tech people were wonderful enough to blow that up so that we had a full screen of it, but the resolution then gets, gets wonky. And so it's a little bit like what playing the old Atari football game where like you're watching these like blobs run around trying to chase the ball. So that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to call it off of both of those things. And it's just like, is it, is it hard? I mean, if you're not if you're not willing or not interested in being prepared, I, I think it it it's probably fine. But I think in terms of trying to capture the feel for everything that's happening, trying to be able to to spend that extra time being around, you know, players to get information to try and and gather beyond what's on the stat page, like I, I think it was 
it, it really did a disservice to to listeners and to viewers to have that. And my hope is that with the NBA basically mandating that all announcers get back on the road, that that's going to help for ML, happen for MLB as well. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the NBA has been ahead of baseball on a lot of things this year. Um, well, they also had – now, in fairness to the league, they, they had – and they have more time to deal with it, right? Because they mm-hmm. – they're at a different. They're starting their season at a different spot in this pandemic than Major League yeah. Baseball did, and Major League Baseball was constantly having to make adjustments along the way. And I get that, like the eighty-five percent vaccination rate, rate that that was something that was really important early on. But as you got to having teams that didn't have it, or you had entities that weren't sending their broadcasters back on the road, whether it be because the team didn't or the some that because not every broadcaster works for the team. Some work for the radio station or for the television vision network you know if there were some of the radio station that they saw it as a cost-cutting move that's a big issue i think that that they weren't taking full advantage of the fact that they could get into that group right away mm. um so as i said at the beginning of the show like you are a you're a you're a, a multifaceted person you you do this work for the diamondbacks you host power alley in the morning on mlb network which is a great show by the way Thank you. um you have no diamondbacks work uh, until mid February, and even that is kind of knock on wood with the CBA situation. Mm-hmm. But um, what's your life like from here until then? Like, what do you what do you do? And I mean, I know you still got the network stuff, but uh, the MLB radio network stuff. But what else you got? I mean, I I I just. I keep working. I mean, I think that's basically. No, I know. It. I mean, I, I mean I, that's. I, I, like I said, I've known you for two decades. I know that you don't know how not to. Yeah, it's kind of. I mean, the thing is, like, if you took baseball, I was having this conversation with another broadcaster the other day, and he was saying the same thing. If you took baseball away from us, like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know what to do. Like, I, I couldn't do it. So, um, I just keep working through the winter. So, I'm. I'm going to be on the road for the American League Championship Series next week, doing shows there. I'm going to host for, the World Series for Series. Yeah, for MLB Network Radio. I'm going to host the World Series uh, on site for the first time this year, which I'm super excited about. Uh, I did my first All-Star game this year. So that's, um, you know, I've been there for almost 15 years and it's a tremendous place to work. And I just work with great people overall um, that I really love. And so I I will do that. That'll take me through the beginning of November. And then, um, you know, after that, I'll be at Fall League Games. (laughs) for mm. a couple of weeks um and you've you called know, those knock on wood will be is that, like, yeah. that going to happen at all this year i i we don't have a contract for it i think we're hoping that that okay. will happen gotcha. um because we have had a great relationship with the fall league over the years and um we would like to i think continue to do i'm hoping i'm not going to get my bosses mad by saying that but um i i'm just like i'm really um excited to be back out there at it and and to to um to be able to to get a chance to see it again so and you could actually call that in person. Yes, yes. Knock on wood. So I, yeah, I think that's going to be uh, be the key is that I actually get to see players. Now I, I, you know, obviously I know some other broadcasters, and and um, you know, I know guys like like Robert Ford, who's the Astros radio guy. Yeah, will do things um, like all of a sudden, like you'll you'll be December, and he'll tweet, "Hey, I'm on ESPN two today, calling the the, the Oklahoma State basketball game." You know, um, do you do any other sports ever? Um, I have in the past, but I have not in a long time. I would be open to it, I suppose. But I mean, for the most part, I, I you know, spent six months at the ballpark. Um, I like my wife. 
Mm-hmm. And she, I think she seems to like me still, although I think it's day to day on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, um, um, I try to spend as much time with her as possible and, you know, we'll, we'll try and get out of town here or there, we'll see family. And, you know, by the time fall league's over, we're at Thanksgiving, right? So then you're Thanksgiving, you're Christmas, and then all of a sudden it's New Year's and you need, you get you know, you're training. six weeks away yeah. from spring training, right? Yeah. So, um, let's catch up with Mr. Farron. There's always so much to catch up with. It's time for a moment of culture. Do you want to go first or shall I? Uh, I can go first. Do it. So um, I don't know if this has been one that's uh, that's recommended, but I, I like I'm a huge fan of what we do in the shadows. I don't know if you've watched that. Yeah, it has been mentioned. Yeah, but go ahead. It's it's, um, it's fantastic. It's a tremendous show. It's the funniest show on television. I think it's just brilliant. It's mostly ad libbed. It's tremendous acting. Great concept. It comes from the movie that Taika Waititi and and Jermaine Clement did, which is also um, wonderful. And it, it's great, but this is way better. And it's basically, it's about four vampires that live on Long Island. And it's like Staten a documentary Island. about it. Or Staten Island. I'm sorry. Staten Island. Yes. Staten Island. Um, and one of them is an energy vampire. And he's really the best character. Colin, Colin Robinson. Robinson. Yes. Although I, I am, you can't see it, but I am wearing, my wife last year got me a uh, Jackie Daytona regular human bartender t-shirt. <laughs> so I'm wearing that right now. It's, it's, it's so good because like it doesn't, it spends no time trying to it, it's just saying like look this is a reality where vampires exist like let's move yeah. on and move on like that's and they're all fish I, out of water right. right like they just don't understand the concept because they've they've been alive for you know 800 years because they're immortal um yeah it's a great show it's on uh hulu if you are a streaming person yes I can't or fx if you're on on regular uh cable, world. cable or satellite yeah um yeah, th- please check that out. It's it's one of the best shows on television. And also the other show that, that Jermaine Clement did, uh, Wellington Paranormal, of the same ilk, a lot of ad lib, is, uh, is very funny. It's it's two cops here <gasps> doing paranormal investigations in, in Wellington, New Zealand. I couldn't get into it. Yeah. I tried to watch the first several episodes and just could just not didn't, get over it. didn't click for you. Yeah. Yeah, which is a bummer because I really, we were really excited about it. And then we watched it and we're kind of like, uh, I don't know. But so, a lot of people do like it. Oh, yeah. Um, so did you do that? So the 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 hotness right now in the world of streaming is a show on Netflix called Squid Game. Have you seen Squid Game? Not yet. Um, it's on the list to watch. So I, we watched Squid Game. We really enjoyed Squid Game, and I had no idea that it was like the big national hotness. It's actually I, I read recently it's, it's getting ready to pass up a, a couple other series um, that I didn't watch called Bridgerton and something else as the the most watched Netflix series in the history of Netflix. Right. Wow. We watched a while ago and it was just like on our, you know, here's what's new. I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. We started and we got into it. And I really thought that it was just being given to me because my wife and I watch a lot of Japanese movies and Asian stuff. And I thought it was like, you know, targeted to me. Like, it's like, oh, well, Kevin's logged in. They watch a lot of this. Let's send him this. Um, and, and Netflix has done a lot of a lot of shows. If you If you look at your what's new list, Netflix has spent a lot of time in the last two years kind of developing shows in to use the business term, emerging markets. Um, Netflix is huge here. They want to be huge in Europe and Asia um, and India. And so they're producing shows in Europe and Asia and India. And there's always you know, interesting shows in, in other languages. And um, But there was a show that came out before Squid Game in Japan um, called Alice in Borderland. That's, that's based on a manga, a graphic novel in Japan, right? And it's called Alice in Borderland. And it's I, I am very much in this world of um, 
you know, if I had a website that where you said, hey, if I like this show, what else would I like? If you like Squid Game, Alice in Borderland is for you. And it's, it's, a, it's a similar setup where people are playing games and they need to win them to survive. There's a whole different kind of uh, setup and reasoning for it. And there's, it's more of it's happening in a different world as opposed to the real world. Um, I think at times it's actually better than Squid Game. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And it did not it, it did not stick the landing especially well. Um, but its opening setup, I thought, was actually better than Squid Game. And I, I'd highly recommend it to people. It's, it's Alice in Borderlands, a Japanese series. It's also on Netflix. Interesting. We'll have to add that to the list. So yeah. we, we're backed up right now because Sex Education started again, which is one of my favorites. Oh, I haven't seen a second of that. Should I watch it. that? I think that show's outstanding. Oh, okay. You know the premise on it, right? That a little that bit. It, yeah. The, the, it's about a, a teenager, like a high school student, but in the UK, whose mother is a, as a sex counselor. And it's a single mother and she's a bit, she, she certainly is, um, you know, she, she, uh, lives her life, let's say. And so he, he kind of has some, some issues with that, but he ends up, um, conspiring with another student to basically be a sex counselor for teenagers for the kids (laughs) in the high school and they're making money on the side. Um, and so like, it's got, it's got a lot of kind of standard teen drama type stuff in it, but it's also the, the mother is Jillian Anderson, who's brilliant. Um, and I, I really like that show. I think that show's fantastic. So I'm excited for season three. I hope that season three is as good as uh, the first two seasons have been because the first two seasons have been great. Um, I think we're done here, Mike. We are? I can't. Just th- flew by. I can't thank you enough for spending your afternoon with me. I'm very happy to. It's nice to. I'm glad we could finally do this. I know, you know, obviously we're whatever, 34 episodes in. And, I, you know, I know that during the regular season, finding a, a, a big chunk of time like this is just an impossibility so i was i'm i'm, I'm thrilled to finally have gotten you on here you, well de- you're definitely like very early on the list of people i want to co-host the show with well that's that's kind of you to say although i don't know that i would even be in 34th place on most people's list so that's <laughs> i feel like I'm coming out ahead here if you want to follow mike on twitter he is at mike underscore farron and he he really just uses it as a platform to give people he knows shit so it's a good time yeah that's basically it like really i don't i don't promote anything i don't tweet anything i don't do anything other than like fuck with people (laughs) so uh thanks for listening everyone enjoy the divisional series uh I, i guess when we record on thursday afternoon most of them will be wrapped up and we'll have things to talk about and uh Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the postseason.